0: Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they
1: want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil Ecolona, and this is Nashville. A habit I got into when I started collecting vinyl records was to read the liner notes very carefully. You see, that is where you learn who played the instruments on the songs that hit you in your sweet spot. A big part of the fun, seeing the same name on a myriad of albums in many different genres. I quickly realized that session musicians are some of the most versatile artists in the world. It takes a lot of skill to play bass full stop, but to do it on jazz, country, and rock albums? Now, that's impressive. Later this hour, we'll invite some working session musicians to talk about their craft and maybe share a few secrets from the studio. But first, nearly everything we do depends on the power grid. Think about the last time your internet went down. You could feel kind of helpless. And climate change could make these kind of disruptions more likely and more frequent here in Tennessee. Joining me now to talk about our state's grids and the challenges it faces is our environmental reporter, Caroline Eggers. Hey, Caroline. Welcome back to This is Nashville.
2: Hey, how's it going?
1: Doing all right. How about you? Good. So, you know, you wrote about a new report looking at how severe weather is affecting our grid. What were the main takeaways?
2: Yeah, so... Severe weather events are happening more often because of climate change. And in turn, we're getting more major power outages. And in this report, a major power outage is defined as one that affects at least 50,000 people. And the vast majority of them in the past two decades have been caused by weather. And the report showed that in the past 20 years, Nearly four out of five happened just in the last 10 years.
1: Mm. And what does that look like in Tennessee? Are we getting more outages?
2: Yes. So Tennessee reflects the national trend. We've had 36 major outages in the past 20 years, Mm. and 30 of them happened just in the last 10 years. Wow.
1: Okay, so obviously when a big storm hits, we know trees and branches can fall on power lines. But are there other risks?
2: Yeah, so our warming climate can impact the grid in all sorts of ways. So take heat waves. You can have, you're going to be using more air conditioning, so that increases uh, our electricity demand. Uh, We've also seen that heat waves can melt power cables Wow yeah and during heat waves you can also get droughts and that's a pretty big issue for power plants that rely on water to cool off
1: I remember years a year ago in Texas they experienced winter weather that cut off power for millions
2: yeah uh, that was a pretty singular event That blackout was mostly caused because their power sources were not weatherized. Um, That was primarily a natural gas failure. Um, And consequently, hundreds of people died. The official state number was 250 deaths about, um, but some estimates were much higher at closer to 700 deaths. Wow. And yeah, that situation really highlights just how serious this problem can be. You know, as you mentioned earlier, it's really annoying when our internet goes out. It feels like life stops for a second. But in, you know, extreme cold or extreme heat, it can be deadly.
1: Mm. The Tennessee Valley Authority is the main supplier of electricity to our region. Are they prepared for more bad weather?
2: TVA is a very reliable utility. But the problem is, is that none of the utilities in the country are really prepared at this point. Part of the problem is that we started building our grid in 1880. And we're using a lot of the same technology technology. Um, and yeah, we're about to expand our grid that will uh have <laughs> present some more challenges as we electrify our cars and our buildings. And then, um, yeah, so one of the solutions that we're going to be looking at is adding microgrids, and okay. that those are like like the name uh, mini grids that can give power to smaller communities that can make us more resilient to win blackouts are happening elsewhere.
1: Speaking about resiliency, what about for you, me, and everyone listening? How can we become more resilient with these pending changes?
2: I think it's really important that we have emergency plans in place for all types of weather. So if there's a heat wave, we need a specific plan for what to do during a heat wave blackout. Same thing for winter weather. I also think it would be a really good idea to get a solar charger.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. We're going to keep an eye on ask Caroline Eggers is WPLN's environmental reporter. You can read her story at WPLN.org. Thanks for coming in to the show, Caroline, and thanks for your reporting.
2: Sure. Thank you.
1: We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll meet a studio engineer and a session musician to learn about their process of bringing musical visions to life. Did they put in the 10,000 hours of practice? We'll find out. Are you curious about the world of, and the work of session musicians? Tweet us at ThisIsNashville. We'll be right back. i Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Session musicians are the backbone of the music industry. Dare I say that without them, we would not have a lot of the albums that we love and cherish. They're the players who keep the rhythm, bring the bass, and rock us with guitars. To name just three instruments, while they often work outside the limelight, that doesn't make them any less important than the bands we see on stage. And any smart artist or savvy producer has their go-to players on speed dial. Is speed dial even a thing anymore? Saved in their phone just doesn't have quite the same ring to it. In in any case, my next guest knows how much is riding on the work uh, that session musicians do. Chuck Ainley is a producer and engineer who has worked with artists like Jewel, Reba McIntyre, Taylor Swift, and Lionel Richie. And he won a Grammy for his work on the surround sound release of the Dire Straits album, Brothers in Arms. Chuck, thanks so much for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville.
3: Hey, how's it going?
1: I'm doing all right. How about yourself?
3: Oh, awesome. I'm down in sunny Mexico on the island of Isla Mujeres.
1: Oh, man, if you want to trade places, I wouldn't wouldn't Ah. balk at that.
3: Hey, I hear it's pretty nice in Nashville right now. It is beautiful. It is beautiful. So...
1: You know, you grew up in, I hear you grew up in Northern Indiana and it was your uncle that gave you your first studio experience. Is that right?
3: That's right. Um, I had a, a very interesting uncle. His name was Uncle Roy, but he was, uh, besides having built a studio in his house, he was a ventriloquist and a musician and he'd play Santa Claus at Christmas, but, um, I, um, I had a little band in in grade school, and we'd go around to the different classes and play for them. And we thought, wouldn't it be cool to make a record? The Beatles had happened, and you know, we were all about um, being a rock star. And um, so my uh, uncle brought us into the studio, and we made a 45 uh, there at his studio. One of the songs was a Beatles song called All My Lovin', and the other song was House of the Rising Sun, which we had no idea what that was about <laughs> <Okay>. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, you know, you moved to Nashville in 1975. You attend Belmont, and then you become a studio engineer. Now, some people think that engineers just turn knobs and push faders, but it's a lot more than that. Can you explain what you do for the layperson out there?
3: Yeah, well, I mean, I'm sure everybody's kind of seen a video of a couple of guys sitting behind the big console with all the knobs and, you know, nodding their head to the music and out across the window, you see the band all, all around one microphone. And so I think most people kind of think that it just, it happens like that. And, and, uh, you know, one take, you've got a song and you put it out on the radio, but really there's, there's so much more involved in it. Um, you know, just, choosing the right location in the room to set up the drums or putting the right microphone. And, you know, every microphone has got its own character putting the right microphone in front of the vocalist. So that you get all the, all those great harmonics out of their vocal and make them really sound awesome. And, you know, and then there's the technology of compressors and equalizers and special effects to kind of just, um, make the record as special as it can possibly be, but you know, it doesn't happen all at once. I mean, I've, I've worked a month on one song just between the recording and the overdubbing and the mixing and comping of different parts. And it's, yeah, it's, it's a a interesting process. You have to really love music to do that job.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I bet. You know, what about getting the musicians ready to do their best work? Are there any tips or tricks you do for that?
3: Oh, well, absolutely. First off, you know, as they come in the door, you know, it's, it's making sure you greet them. There's always big hugs and like, how you doing and all that going on. And, um, you know, you, you, you try to make it as comfortable that environment in the recording studio is, you know, if you're sitting on a couch, you don't want anybody to feel uptight. And um, so that's all part of it. You know, it just everybody has to get in this creative mode. Um, the artist has to feel like they're totally secure because they're, they're they're putting their heart out to the world at that moment that they're singing the song. And so, you know, oftentimes, you know, I'll introduce a new microphone to one of the musicians, and I, I go, look, I got this new mic. It's really awesome. Let's try it out. And it just, it makes them feel as though they're really important to the process.
1: What's the difference between working with studio musicians musicians as opposed to a full band?
3: well uh you know uh, they're all fabulous i mean musicians in my mind are some of the greatest people on the planet so um it's, but studio musicians are an entirely different breed they they go in day in day out sometimes working on two or three different albums or uh, with two or three different artists in one day you know so they have to be totally flexible, totally versed in all kinds of music and able to bring something unique to each song. They have to hear the song for it, just in its minutia and understand what that song is all about and offer something musical that makes that song important to, you know, the person that's going to listen to it. And so, you know, live musicians, they're incredible. You go see them live, they're performers. You don't have that visual context when you're in the studio. It's just purely about what's being played. And that performance is going to be played over and over and over again. So any little flaw is going to be picked up on, whereas in a live performance, you know a lot can get by.
1: My next guest is a studio drummer who has worked with the Dynamites, Vanessa Williams, and the disco queen, Gloria Gaynor. Derek Phillips, welcome to This Is Nashville. Thanks for being here.
0: Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, good afternoon.
1: It was an honor and a privilege. Oh, pri- pri- the privilege is all ours, my friend. Now, I understand that before you came to Nashville in 2006, you were in New York getting into the jazz scene. You know, I wonder, did your work as a jazz drummer prepare you for session work?
0: Uh, yeah, in a lot of ways it did, actually. I mean, obviously with jazz, there's more improvisation involved and um, and a high level of execution is demanded for being a jazz Artists. You have to know a lot of repertoire and, uh, and cover a lot of genres. I mean, I played everything in the jazz world from hip hop in- influence grooves to Latin jazz grooves, big band to uh, bebop, hard bop, and even some free jazz. So I guess it is, I had similar muscles that just transferred differently. So now um, to, to Chuck's point, you know, I, I, when I record the bulk of the music I record now is country music, but I still do rock sessions. I do R&B sessions occasionally a jazz session here or there. So the ability to shift gears quickly and to assess what's needed from my position, it definitely um, helped me having my jazz background has definitely
1: influenced me in order to do that. Is that from the 10,000 hours of practice to put in?
0: Oh, absolutely, man. I I spent (laughs) several hours in a in a practice room when no one wanted to hire me, working on my rudiments and playing to a metronome in order to get to where I got here now, where I am now, so.
1: So explain to us what it's like to be a studio musician. Like, you know, how are you introduced to the songs that you will end up playing and recording?
0: Well, a typical experience as a musician in the studio is, usually we're hired by a producer or a songwriter and we'll come in and generally what happens is um, there'll be a, a demo um, recording of a song. So it's very stripped down. Usually it's just a vocalist and maybe a piano player, or guitar player. So it's just the, the, the bare minimum of the, the actual song. And then I'm in a room with a steel player, guitar player, bass player, keyboard player, what have you. And then so our job is once we walk from the control room hearing the demo into the big room to our instruments, we have to take what we've heard and then transfer that into a song that's radio ready. And um, so that's that's a very daunting task, but it's a very exciting task. And so there's a lot of conversation that may or may not happen. Sometimes I'll get together with the bass player and we'll talk about different rhythms that we'll, we'll come together on or certain parts um, as, as a group that, that need more accentuation. And, and sometimes we don't talk at all. We just get in there and we just let it, let it fly. But we all have a mindset of this needs to become a song that someone can hear radio. Instantly. And so, and it's a lot of pride. It's a lot. And so usually what happens is once we take that, we'll, we'll do one take. And then if someone has something to fix, they'll, they'll, they'll go over some mistakes or um, a guitar player. will will go back and maybe overdub a second guitar part, uh, create a guitar solo. If there's space for that in the song. Myself. I, I may overdub a uh, percussion parts like a tambourine or shaker. So it, it gets pretty involved and it and it happens very quickly. So I'm, it's, I'm excited about the challenge of, taking something that's very bare minimum and try to make it something that's, that is something that we would hear on the radio or on a record, so.
1: If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville and I'm your host, Khalil lake We're talking this hour about the world of session musicians with producer and engineer, Chuck Ainley and drummer, Derek Phillips. You know, know, Derek, you were just talking about the process of getting in, becoming Mm -hmm. as a session musician, recording these songs. I wonder if that's different depending on the instruments people are playing like is it does it happen one by one or as in the example you said everyone comes in and plays simultaneously
0: yeah it varies from session to session i mean generally we would do it all together um it's kind of more fun because you can create the energy and a synergy together and you can work off of each other more quickly um, as you're playing but at the same time um which was enhanced because of covid i've done a lot more remote sessions where i've had people from all over the world send me um, songs that are minus the drum and percussion parts and I'll have to create those parts um, with just maybe some communication through text or email or none at all and so that that is a very different process and it, it definitely scratches a different itch for me because I, in that sense I feel like I'm more of a producer than that and, and an arranger because I have to come up with the drum parts solely by myself and to create these things, and and, and it, it also involves a little bit of mixing and engineering. So, but um, I, I love both processes. I love being in a room with everyone creating at the same time, looking at people's faces, feeding off the energy, and seeing their intent while they play, as well as almost being in a lab and working alone, and and sending stuff around the world and and have it become something that people
1: can listen to. What well. do you, what do you love about about playing the drums?
0: everything little literally everything i love hitting something and it creates a sound i love the fact that i can strike these circles and they actually produce a sound and people respond to it and people dance to it i mean everyone loves when they hear a beat they can't help but move even you see babies respond when they hear music and even if it's just drums um i, I love what they do i love that my instrument is actually a combination of multiple instruments I'm, I'm kind of a jealous every other instrumentalist. Like I I'm a I'm mm-hmm. I would love to be a great guitar player. I'm a I'm a below average piano player as bass player. So I I love the fact that I get to try and create some kind of harmony and some orchestration in my one instrument. I, I treat every individual part of the drum set, the snare drum, the bass drum, the cymbals as individual entities and and make them into one organism. I'm fascinated by that process.
1: Is recording is the recording process for drums? Is that an intricate one?
0: It can be. It can be because I mean, um, to uh, allude to what Chuck was referring to, like just microphone placement alone can change the sound of a drum drastically. The type of, of a microphone that you use on a on a drum or, or, or cymbals or around the drums can change it drastically, and, and it can and create different emotions and uh, have a different effect on what the sound ultimately sounds like. So, yeah, it can be intricate because and the fact that I'm playing multiple instruments all at once, you know, that can be there's bleed everywhere. I mean, so my my kick drum mic is picking up the snare drum and the cymbals and the overhead, the cymbals, the microphones that are above the drum sit over. I'm picking up everything. So that that definitely creates a heightened awareness for me to be precise, because every mic is picking up everything. So I'm, I'm e- it's even a um, more, I feel like it's even a bigger microscope on my playing. So it, it can get very intricate and very, very complicated at times, but it's, it's worth the chase though.
1: Now, Chuck, when you're producing and recording a song, are you recording each track, each song track by track? For example, would you have like Derek first lay down the drums and then add the instruments, other instruments on top one by one?
3: Well, sometimes, like Derek said, sometimes it happens like that and and here lately because of COVID and everybody kind of going into their homes to, to make records that happened more than it used to. One of the fantastic things about Nashville is the collaboration. And I just have my feeling is that when you get more than one person in a room together, there's a communication that happens and it's like unspoken. It's just performing and people playing off of each other, Um, that that interaction is so much greater than what anyone's individual concept of the song might be. So yeah, I love the collaborative method of making records. Um, It's more difficult and it really requires a a great recording studio to do that.
1: Now, every producer has their own style. Do you like do you like to have songs mapped out for the session players, or or would you prefer to allow them to get a feel for the song and then add their own style and embellishments to it?
3: Man, I'm totally about allowing the musicians to to do their thing. I, in fact, even if there is a song demo, I'll I'll ask the artist. I say, can you just play this on guitar, sing it live in front of the musicians, let them get a vibe off of you. And, and because, you know, oftentimes, I mean, these guys in, in Nashville and, and, and around the world and studio, you know, the studio musicians, they're so good that they can hear a demo and copy it and it'd be done. And, and you know, everybody's like, yeah, yeah, that's great, but it's not unique. So that's why I, I like to kind of like open up the window and let, let them kind of really come up with their own concept. And, you know, if it's not happening you can always go back to the demo and go, no, it really needs to be more like this or what, you know, can we you know give a little direction and, and and change where it's going
1: what are one of your more memorable moments of being in the studio
3: man i've been doing this so long <laughs> there's so many memorable moments <laughs> um, um i've done a bunch of records with george Strait, and those records are always incredible is because everything does happen pretty much live at once um and he's such a great singer um getting to work with Mark Knopfler on his solo albums, those, you know, just to see his brilliance and like kind of um, going through every potential possible different bass note or, you know, he just has to discover everything before he's willing to let go of a song. But um, one of my favorites is always kind of the last thing I did and that's uh, the new Lyle Lovett album. Uh, you know, working with Lyle, he's just an awesome um, songwriter and um, presenter of songs, and uh, we, we did this most recent album in the studio with, I mean, everybody was in the studio, to, you know, in separate rooms, booths and stuff, but we had live horns and background vocals and all that going down live. It was really amazing.
1: We Speaking of that project, we have a clip from Lyle Lovett's new album, The 12th of June. Let's hear a track from that album now. This track is called Pants, is overrated. The they hail from Scotland and the Sheep make socks and, and grown
2: men run around in Pants overrated.
0: Yes, Pants is overrated, Pants is, overrated. Pants is
1: overrated, yes, 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 I really dig that. Three-year-old me totally agrees. Pants is overrated. <laughs> now I can hear horns, violin, a whole lot of vocals. Paint the picture for me of this studio session when you all recorded that song.
3: Okay, well, this was done at my old studio at Soundstage Studios. I'm no longer and uh, an owner there, but I got to build this room. And so there, as you walk in the door, there's like a big lounge. Um, and it's actually got a big bar and everything in there. Um, and then you you walk from there into um, the main room. But as you walk into the main room, you pass a big booth. And that's, that's where Lyle was. I had the horns in that lounge. Um, you walk into the main part of the room, and that's where the drums were um and there was a divider glass divider wall so uh i had everybody else on the other side of that divider wall with um and it, it's upright bass so the upright bass was in a separate booth and the piano was in a separate booth but you could look out into the room and look at all these people now that particular song um the the background vocals were done separately but it was still it was a it was a large group of people. Um, and, and as we we added everybody to that, like you said, you've got violin, um, there's probably 14 different singers on there, um, you know, so yeah. All right, now
1: Derek, I wanna play a little bit of a song you played on. Here is Man of Peace from Gloria Gayna's album, Testimony. you like to
4: catch. The band is playing Dixie. A man got his hand Could be, the Could be
3: the local priest.
1: That's nice. I like that. It's got a brace beat feel to it. You know, tell me about that experience, Derek.
0: And that was incredible. We actually recorded that at Chris Stevens' um home studio in his backyard, essentially. So it's a little bit small, not quite as big as the studio that Lyle was in it uh, with uh, with Chuck, but um, the it was phenomenal. The band was great. Um, Paul Brown on keys, um, Paul Allen on guitar, and then this this was the clincher. Willie Weeks was the bass player on that session, legendary bass player who played with Donny Hathaway in the '70s. Like I grew up listening to this man play bass, and so that was a very special session for me in particular because it, it was a small main room, so it was just um, myself and Willie the two of us in the room we couldn't even see the keyboard playing guitar player and i was about 10 feet away from willie staring straight at him we were face to face and so it took all the energy in my body to focus on playing the song because i'm staring and going that's willie weeks that guy's played with john cougar Mellencamp and hmm. donnie hathaway so it was a oh it was a life-changing experience and he's a sweet man as aside from being a phenomenal musician that, that... so and that was a lot of fun and Go ahead.
1: No, no. I was just going to say that's really cool how you can be starstruck while working with some of your musical (laughs) heroes.
0: I tend to be more often than not just because I'm such a fan of everyone and I I love creators and and that. So that was a special moment for me. And um, unfortunately, Gloria wasn't in the room, but she did FaceTime us during the session. So we got to say hi to her. But it was remarkable. And yeah, on top of that, I got to play with Gloria Gaynor. I got a chance to get my second Grammy because of that experience so it was it was very it was a complete experience musically gratifying challenging and it fed my soul because I got to spend time with um, some great people just decent human beings and and to work with a legend two couple of legends with Gloria and, and Willie
1: all right now Chuck seeing that you've had this long and awesome career what would you say to anyone listening who is aspiring to become a studio engineer and producer
3: well number one you just gotta love it all the way to the deepest part of your soul, because you will spend 18 hours a day in a room with nobody else around you, and just you and the music sometimes. Um, And uh, if you don't, then you ought to find another job, but it, it can be one of the greatest jobs in the world, because for me, I don't feel like I ever went to work. One day of my life, it's just been the greatest experience. That is music. And I've been so lucky. Yeah, sorry.
1: Wonderful. I'm I'm so glad. Really, really happy to have you with us. He is music producer and engineer Chuck Anley. Thank you so much, Chuck, for being with us today. Really enjoyed talking with you, my friend.
3: Man, it's been a real pleasure. And, Derek, it's been so cool listening in on you, dude. I hope we get to work together.
0: I hope so, too, Chuck. It would be an honor.
1: That's great. We're building awesome. connections. Live radio here at This Is Nashville. Derek, stick with us through the break, all right? Will do. When we come back, we'll hear more about what it takes to work as a session musician in our town. We'll also learn about the famous Nashville number system. Are you training to become a session musician? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Ekalona, and this is Nashville. This hour, we are exploring the world of session musicians, from drummers and guitarists to vocalists, fiddlers, horn players, and beyond. They are the people who make our favorite jams really pop. This is Music City, after all, and session musicians make it happen every single day in our town. My next guests know all about what it's like to live the session player life. Amber Woodhouse is a vocalist and saxophonist. She's also a member of the band Trigger Hippie. And Kristen Weber is a violinist by trade. Amber, Kristen, thanks so much for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville.
5: Thanks for having me.
1: Hi, thanks for having us. It's great to have you both. Now, now Amber, you came to Nashville after you attended the Berklee School of Music, but I understand being a studio musician wasn't your original goal. Tell me, what did you want to do and how did that lead you to becoming a session musician?
4: Yeah, well, once again, thanks for having us. Really honored to be here. Um, when I moved to Nashville, I was intending on being a talent agent. And so I worked at William Morris Endeavor, uh, one of the largest talent agencies in the world, um, working on booking shows for Christian and country music artists. Um, and it was a lot of fun. But at the same time, I could never let go of my musical um just the talents and all the things that I'd been working so hard at over the years. So on the side of my full-time job, I was doing session work as a vocalist, eventually as a saxophone player as well. The word got out that I play saxophone Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and doing live shows with people and, and all kinds of things like that. And it came to a point where HR sat me down and said, you are playing with people. We are, looking to sign. You are coming in on time, but we could tell you're not focused. You know, you got to decide, do you want to do music full-time or do you want to book music full-time? And I said, you know what? Answer's pretty clear. I'm out. Love you guys. Thank you. Yeah. And then I just decided to do music full time from that on, that point on. And session work became a huge part of how I was able to sustain being self-employed as a musician.
1: So you told William Morris, it's been real. It's <laughs> been fun. It's been real yep. fun. I have a question. Did they look to sign you then? No,
4: they didn't. You know, it, it was an interesting thing. It's kind of like when you know people, uh, too closely, I feel like it might've just been hard for them to see me as an artist at the time. Um, you know, it's like when you are looked at as, Oh, you're singing backgrounds for that person and that person and that person, you're playing for that person and that person and that person. Sometimes it's hard getting people to see you outside of just that. If that makes sense. I got it. And And both worlds are important. Um, but for what they do and what they look to sign
5: that at the time was not really something they were looking for.
1: Kristen, how about you? How, how'd you get started in session work?
5: Well, first of all, I can confirm that Amber's too talented to be behind the desk. <laughs> She's amazing. <laughs> Gotta hear her yeah. sing and play. Um, how did I get started in the session world? Yeah. Um, I moved to town after I graduated. I also went to Berkeley and, uh, I was playing in a band and kind of doing the day job thing on the side. And I just decided, um, that... I was going to do whatever it took, so you just kind of start out saying yes to everything, even if it doesn't pay anything, and then they start to pay $50, and the gigs start to pay $100, and you start to make friends and network, and next thing you know, you don't have to wait tables anymore, and now I'm really fortunate to spend most of my week um, in a studio playing with symphonies or playing fiddle or um, playing a string quartet, whatever it calls for.
1: You're pretty versatile. You're able to play With country bands, you work on pop songs as a part of a string quartet. What are the unique differences between those settings? And tell me, what is your favorite to play in?
5: Yeah, it's drastically different. I think I go to a different part of my brain depending on if I'm sight-reading a challenging classical work or if I'm having to improvise. And what's really confusing is when someone notates a fiddle part and I have to sight-read that and my brain is kind of uh, goes off the rails. Mm -hmm. It's like, wait, how do I sight read when I'm supposed to be improvising right now? Um, I don't have a favorite, which is why I do it all, Um, which is why I'm in a small group of string players in town who can improvise and sight read because we couldn't choose. So um, I'm happy as long as I'm getting to do a little bit of everything, you know, throughout my month. Um, And the difference between doing both of these settings is that uh, it really comes down to... Um, in my one mindset when I'm playing in a band and I'm playing fiddle and I'm kind of doing what, what Chuck was describing of having a band in a room where we're all bouncing ideas off of each other, is in that setting I'm, I'm thinking about what style are we in, what am I trying to imitate, what kind of flavor, and then just kind of letting these ideas come into me, what kind of a in- fiddle intro does this need, what kind of a fiddle solo does this need. Um, it's all just coming, kind of coming out of me Uh, like a flow of of words or a sentence, an improvisation. If I'm in a setting with a string quartet or a symphony or an orchestra of some size, and in that case, we have to play as a unit, Uh and we're all sight reading the same notes, and it has to be cohesive. I also can't take as many risks in that kind of a situation because you don't want to be the person that stands out or messes up the whole take for all 50 people in the room. Uh So uh, both is a really intense, focused experience, but in very drastically different ways.
1: Drummer Derek Phillips is still with us. Now, Derek, Nashville is famous for something known as the Nashville number system that session musicians employ. Can you tell us, in layperson's terms, what it is?
0: Absolutely, but first I gotta give a shout out to Amber. Chris and I have worked with both of them and they're phenomenal women and incredible human beings. So I just wanna shout them out. Um, but love yes, you, the Derek. number. <laughs> love you too. Back at you. Love you too. <laughs> so, But the Nashville number system, it's kind of interesting because it it threw me for a curveball when I first moved here. But um, the the Nashville number system is based off of um, harmonic structure, based off the chord progression of a song. And a real simple way of thinking about it is if you're looking at a piano and you're looking at all just the white keys, um, you start on the note C and go from C all the way up and just play the white keys all the way up to the next C, the next octave. That gives you these scale pitches, right? So C would be, if we're playing a song that's in the key of C major, the first note would be C, D would be the second note, E would be the third note, and et cetera, et cetera, all the way to you get back to C again. So the way the natural structure works is by we're playing a song in the key of C, if I play, it's based off the chords, correct? So the chords are two notes or more. So if I play a C, skip the note D and play an E, skip the note F and play a G, I've now played a C major chord, C, E, G. Um, and so since we're in a key of C and that's the first note of the scale, that note, that chord would be called a one chord. So if I go up and start on, if I go up to C, D, E, F, F is the fourth note in the C major scale. And I make that the first note of the root of the chord of my new chord, F, skip a note G, go to A, skip the note B and play a C again. And now I have the notes F, A, C, every other white key on the piano, I now have the chord, an F major chord that starts on the fourth note of a C major scale. So I would write a four on the paper and I have a one in the four. So when I look at a paper and I see a one, the one, I would play a C major chord for four beats or one measure. And then when I see the four, I go to the F major scale and play a four chord. So so it, it's funny because if you put that in front of someone who doesn't know that, it just looks like, algebra or math problem, hmm. but that's actually it, di- it dictates the chord progression of the key that we'd be playing in as a band.
1: Okay, so Kristen has brought her fiddle and so let's get into <laughs> some examples of how it used. Derek, you give us an example and Kristen, you play it for us. Cool? Cool. Okay. Here we go.
5: <laughs> don't pick D <laughs> right, flat ready, major. Kristen? Yeah, don't pick any hard
1: I keys.
0: Want that to, we'll <laughs> stay with C. Well, what's, your, what's your favorite key to play in? Yeah, I like C. Okay, C. So she'll play a C major chord. C, E, G. One. Yep. And then go to the four chord, F, A, C. Then now back to one, C, C major. Now, just for fun, let's play a five. So, starting on the G, which is the
1: fifth of the scale, G, B, D. That's how it's done. <laughs> awesome. There you go.
0: Thanks, Prisma.
3: Thank you.
1: Look, everybody, I have the best job in the world. I get to have my own little personal (laughs) concert and music lesson. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville and I'm your host, Khalil A. We're talking this hour with session musicians, Amber Woodhouse, Kristen Weber and Derek Phillips. So that was a really cool breakdown of the Nashville number (laughs) system and it makes sense, but that's easy for me to say because I just had to listen to it. Amber, is it hard to master as a musician?
4: No. And, you know, as a, as a vocalist, which side note, I'd love to just put it out there that vocalists are musicians as well. Mm -hmm. That's part of my mission is to just make sure people know vocalists are just as much musicians as anyone else. Um, (laughs) and, uh, but as a horn player, um, if you grow up, learning from lead sheets, which are you know usually all the jazz standards and stuff, it's not too different from the Nashville number system. So um, you're kind of already thinking in that same way of chord tones matching up with numbers. So coming into Nashville and seeing lead sheets with the Nashville number system on it, once I just kind of got the little differences in the nomenclature, it was very easy.
1: Now, I want to get a little bit more into the pressure of being a session player where your performance has to be airtight and you're on someone else's clock. Kristen, you talked about it a little bit earlier, but what is that recording environment like? Is it, can it be a super tense place at times?
5: Uh, Yeah, and I would say definitely when I first started out in a studio setting, I was so nervous. Or, you know, whenever I've had my first, like my first Nashville number session or my first orchestra session, Um, And you just kind of with experience, you get more and more comfortable with it. But, yeah, there are microphones on you. And if you mess up, you're holding everyone else up. So you have to stay extremely focused while also vibing out and having fun and trying to create art and trying to create a good feeling.
1: Okay, I want to go back to the Nashville number system for a second. You know, Derek, tell us, why do musicians use it? It's
0: very simple. I mean, to, to Amber's point, it's actually based off of classical theory and um, it's very simple that the beauty of it is there's less notation, there's less paper. You can just, and it's very quick to create that. So go back to what I was saying in the previous segment about when we're in the studio and we listen to a demo. Um, generally, if, if there's not a number sheet created someone, the band leader or the end of, the total band will create their own sheets and write down, the chord progression of the song on one piece of paper and then take that into the room with them and make what kind of notes. Sometimes I may write a rhythm I don't want to forget. Sometimes there's different accents and different placement of those chords. So those need to be put in. But it's very simple because it's very cut and dry. Everyone can work off it. And it's because sometimes, like, like Kristen was saying, I, I can start to read too, but reading music notation might, might take a little bit of time to make sure I play every note correctly. Whereas this is, it just simplifies everything. And we also get to add our own flavor to that as well because even though we have the chord progression we still have to come up with the groove the parts um the the signature melody lines the solos all of that etc instead of having it all dictated for us
1: now when i was introduced to the nashville number system I was told it was a really great way for live performances. So say if someone's performing downtown in Broadway, their bass player gets ill, can't make it to the gig. Hey, they can pull up anyone who knows how to play bass. And there was someone sitting in the audience kind of holding up the numbers for them to kind of go. So it seemed like they had been playing with the band forever when actually this was their first time sitting in with them. Kristen, you're nodding your head. Is that kind of true?
5: Yeah, and the beauty of it is kind of what Amber was talking about with with jazz standards – there's letters to indicate the chords, but in Nashville, numbers are numbers, so you can quickly change the key for a different singer, and the whole band, it's still the same chart. The whole band can still read the exact same song down.
1: Awesome. Now, Amber, speaking of singers, you are one of the lead singers in Trigger Happy, and you have this career as a solo artist as well. Trigger Hippie, pardon me. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm happy for the Trigger Hippie. And you know, we go. <laughs> you have this career as a solo artist and these are roles that put you a little bit more in the spotlight. So tell me, you know, what do you like about being a session musician as well as to having these singular roles?
4: Well, one thing that I really enjoy doing is mimicking other voices. That's I think, As a child, that's how I started learning how to sing. And so when you go into a session as a vocalist, a lot of times you are not being hired to necessarily do your own thing. Like, I'm not going to go into a session necessarily and do the Amber Woodhouse thing that I do with Trigger Hippie. But... I'm going to, in real time, listen down to a song, which oftentimes I'm not going to receive before I show up to the studio, hear how the vocalist sings, hear the intricacies, their timbre, their texture, all those things, and try and mimic that back. And so for me, it feels like a fun game and every session feels different and it keeps it fresh. Um, Whereas singing as a you know, front woman, or as a solo artist, I then get to explore all of the different textures within my own voice to kind of come up with my own sound and and give a real performance. But even on that performance side, as a background vocalist, it's so important to still give a performance while trying to mesh with what other people are
1: doing. Who are some of your major influences?
4: Yeah, growing up, I loved C.C. Winans. I loved Whitney Houston, all of the pop divas of the 90s. Like, mm. every, you know, everybody, I loved The Temptations. And that was one thing that I did as a kid was I would try and sing every single part um, from mm. the lowest to the highest, all in one take together, just in the car. <laughs> you know That was that was my favorite thing to do.
1: That's nice. Now, I, I wonder, Kristen, who are some of your influences? Because I know of the great jazz violinist John Luke Ponty. Is that someone you listen to?
5: Yeah, definitely. And I, um, I probably have listened to Stefan Grappelli even more on the jazz side, who is like the gypsy jazz king. Um, I grew up listening to Mark O'Connor, and I think uh, he was a big-time session fiddle player for a while in the 90s. And he kind of taught me that you can sound classical sometimes, you can sound fiddle, you can do jazz, like violin can do a lot of things. In fact, he used to have um, these fiddle camps in Tennessee every summer that I would come to, which is where I got to see fiddle players do more than just, you know, their Suzuki songs, their little classical songs. Mm-hmm. And that's how I was, I decided that, well, I want to do it all. i want to do all these things.
1: And now you are. Going for it. That's right. I wonder, you know, we're still in it, but what was the pandemic like for you all working as a musician? You know, Amber, what was that like for you?
4: I'm sorry. Could you repeat the question? It kind of broke out on my end. I'm sorry.
1: What was it like working as a musician during the pandemic for you?
4: Oh man, it was grind time. You know, all, all the other uh, sessions I had done before the lockdown happened back in March, it was like one week in March where all of our calendars pretty much got canceled. I think everyone can probably uh, pinpoint that day. And I had already started doing some remote work from my house, just kind of fiddling with it. But once we realized that the calendars were starting to clear up, I really focused in on recording myself and doing my own session work. And it ended up sustaining me. There's, You know, between Nashville sessions that I was able to run out of my house and things like Eric Giggs HQ, which is kind of like Fiverr for musicians, but um, uh, it's a platform that allows you to set your own price and there's no negotiation. You get paid to do what you (laughs) want to do. I I was able to sustain myself. Um, And from that, it is a part of my business that I still do to this day. So I'm very grateful for that.
1: Derek, what was it like for you?
0: Um, it was it was a major shift, but um, I, you know, it, at times it was daunting because I didn't get to create music in a room with other people. So that was, that was the downside of it. But the, the blessing was that it forced me to create my own studio rig at my house. So I bought a bunch of gear, I bought some microphones and mic stands and soundproofing, and I, I started to hone my skills at not only as a drummer but also as a producer and engineer in my own right. And so thankfully, I had a handful of songwriters. Um, across the country that uh would send me stuff and, and like Amber did I got on the Air Gigs website as well as Sound Better and I got to create with people that I've never met and speak a different language. And um yeah, so it forced me to to get into understanding deeper what it takes to create in the studio. So it, it ultimately it, it it
1: enhanced my abilities as a musician. Kristen, did you build your own studio at home? Yep.
5: I did as well, (laughs) reluctantly. And then once I did it, I I agree it's like become a big part of my income and my um, expression. Now I'm so glad that I took the time to do it.
1: Did you join Air Gigs too?
5: Um, Never heard of that one. Going to write it down. I do sound better, like Derek mentioned.
1: Okay. Now you know the world of session musicians is small. I mean, all three of you know each other, obviously. How is that as time passes? It, it seems to be a very collaborative environment where other forms of music and entertainment industry can be highly competitive. What do you like most about being in this session world, Kristen?
5: Um, yeah, you just hit on it. My favorite thing is that it's kind of like a social gathering with friends. And the more, the more sessions you do, the more cool people you get to meet. And, uh, you know, across all ages and experience levels and genres... And uh, you're just kind of opening your heart every time you step into the studio and behind a microphone and creating music with people that you maybe don't know very well. It's a really bonding experience.
1: What's your favorite moment about being in the studio?
5: Um, like, a, like an anecdote? or yeah. An- yeah.
1: yeah, give me a quick story.
5: Okay, my best story uh, uh, is when I got to record with Dolly Parton, and she was uh, re-recording a version of Jolene to go on the Dumplin' soundtrack. And uh, she was in the control room, so she was in a different room than the eight-string players. And all of a sudden, you know, we'd done a couple passes and then the producer came on our cans and said, hey, we're going to send Dolly in actually to sing live with you guys. We think that might get the right feel. Wow. And so we were just like all completely silent and Dolly walks in and they set up a microphone. So she's facing us, seeing Jolene just as well as she's ever sang it. And uh, even though there was like several way more experienced players in the room, you know, who played with everybody, we were all like had tears in her eyes.
1: Mm-hmm. That's a really special moment. That's super yeah, I cool. I won't top
5: that one. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I don't think we can. That is violinist Kristen Weber. She was joined by vocalist and saxophone player Amber Woodhouse and drummer Derek Phillips. Thanks to you all for being here. And thanks for bringing music to our ears.
5: Thanks so much Thank you for, for having, having us. us.
1: Thank you so much, thank you. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. This is Nashville as a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche and Rose Gilbert. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tuthope. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Samuel Herb, Kyle Daniel, Todd Tidwell, Jack Silverman, and our digital producer this week, Cindy Abrams. The con- conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ikelona. We'll see you on Monday, everybody, and be good to each other.